Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Cantola. That's right, that's me, Melissa Cantola, and you're welcome to Truth Be Told Radio. What I'm going to do for you now is play the main lesson. This is A Tale of Two Kingdoms by Vodi Vakum here on Truth Be Told Radio. New book, we finished the book of Romans, and now we are heading back to the Old Testament, and we are in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. The book of Daniel has much to say about living in the midst of turbulent times. It would be a fitting title for the book of Daniel, would it not? Hope in the midst of turbulent times. Whatever you have gone through, I guarantee it has not risen to the level of Daniel's despair. I guarantee you that your worst day was better than what Daniel experienced when he, many of his countrymen, were dragged off in chains to a foreign land. And yet, the book of Daniel stands to give us hope in the midst of those turbulent times. Listen to this from one commentator. Over against the might of Babylon and the seeming superiority of her gods, two questions face exiled Jews. Is Israel's God truly God as compared with the Babylonian ones? And will God forgive the sin of his people and resume fellowship with them? The first question is answered in Daniel by his recounting of the might of Israel's God as he exercises his sovereignty over all human kingdoms. Kingdom theology of the book of Daniel is an answer to the exile's concern over the uniqueness of Israel's God. The book of Daniel also answers the second question. Not only is the theme of kingdom present, but also that of covenant. Covenant is present implicitly in the narrative sections of the book, with the emphasis on the distinctiveness of Daniel and his companions in their exilic setting. However, in chapters 9 through 11, the covenant theme appears Explicitly, is our God truly God? And will he forgive us and redeem us? Those are the questions, not just for Daniel. Those are the questions for us. Is my God truly God? And in the light of my circumstances, will he redeem me? Will he rescue me? Will it eventually be all right? If you have not asked those questions, you just haven't lived long enough. Amen? Those are the questions with which we all wrestle, and those are the questions that Daniel answers. Daniel is one of those books that we know about but only in part. And we know about it only in part because most of us have only ventured to try to understand the first half of the book. Amen. 
and that badly because oftentimes when we go to the first half of the book, there, there, there's, there's several ways you can divide the book of Daniel. There's two halves. There's the narrative half, chapters 1 through 6, and most of us know about the narrative halves in chapters 1 through 6. It's, it's narrative like 40% of the Old Testament is narrative, and we get there, and it's great. But, of course, the way we deal with it is not so great because, again, we don't have a redemptive historic approach. We don't have a Christ-centered approach. So all we're left with is moralism. Daniel and his friends are great. Be like them. The old song, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Hey, that's the way we looked at the book of Daniel. It's moralism, pure and simple. Here's what they did that was good. Do that so that God will be pleased with you and that all may go well with you. We messed that up, and that's the easy half. The difficulty comes in the second half, in the apocalyptic section, beginning at chapter 7, where there are all these dreams and visions that Daniel is interpreting. And for most of us, we don't even bother reading through those. We just go get a good study Bible or something that will tell us what we're supposed to believe about the symbols. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Okay? We don't even wade through that. And, of course, why should we wade through that? Because, after all, it really doesn't have any valuable, any, any value, except for maybe to interpret some of the signs of the end times. Isn't it amazing that we're okay with that idea that God gives a book, and the book of Daniel is written probably somewhere around 530 B.C. Some folks will put it later than that, and there are several reasons for that, but Daniel's probably dated somewhere around 530 B.C. The events in the book of Daniel take place between 605 and, and 537 B.C. The book is written shortly thereafter around 5.30, or completed shortly thereafter, around 5.30. But isn't it interesting that we're okay with the idea that God would have a, a, a book of the Bible written, and half of it is absolutely meaningless to all people in all times except those who happen to be here at the end. Really? Is that what you think? Now, I know what's going on inside you right now. Because inside you right now, you're going, I know I'm supposed to, like, shake my head no to Pastor Cody right now, because it just really sounds bad the way he put it. But before he said that, uh, yeah. So my answer is, uh, no, God did not give us a book that was without meaning or is without meaning for everyone except those who are alive at the end of the age. It had meaning for the exiles, and it has meaning for us. Every last bit of it has meaning for us. Not only can you divide it into two halves, but you can also divide it into two languages. This is unique about the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 through Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4a is written in Hebrew. Daniel chapter 2 verse 4b through the end of Daniel chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. Then it goes back into Hebrew again. So three sections, two different languages. The Hebrew section, 
the Aramaic body, and then the Hebrew closing of this letter. It's another way that you could divide it. Since we're not going to be reading Hebrew and Aramaic, we won't divide it that way. There's a third thing that you see here. In the Aramaic section, there is a chiasm. Now, we've talked about chiastic structures before, you know, the structure kind of like a, a, a cross, if you will. There's a chiasm in the second section, the Aramaic section, which is very important that it's written in the Aramaic language and has a chiastic structure. It is just the Aramaic portion, Aramaic portion that has a chiastic structure. What is the chiasm? Now, again, we don't have a chart of here for you, so it's difficult for me to show you. So I, I will try to walk it out for you. And think about it going on a piece of paper like this, okay, in and then out, but visualize it as I move. In Chapter 2, there's a dream of a statue representing four kingdoms. Chapter 3, there's worship of the golden statue or perish in a pit. Chapter 4, there's the judgment of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're going to start the same thing in reverse. Chapter 5, there's the judgment of Belshazzar. Chapter 6, worship Darius or perish in a pit. Chapter 7, a dream of four beasts who represent four kingdoms. Perfect chiastic structure. Very rarely seen anywhere. But here, in the Aramaic portion, there is a perfect chiasm. And there is a message there in that structure. We'll talk about that as our time goes on. But here, in this section, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we see, as I said, the tale of two kingdoms. Let's read this section together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Let me just sort of put a footnote here. Let me just put a pin in it at this moment. Because there are people who would say, well, see, there's already a problem because the Bible contradicts itself because Jeremiah says that it was in the fourth year of his reign, and here it says that it was in the third year of his reign. Uh, just know this. Just Let me answer that as simply as I possibly can. Remember that Daniel's in Babylon. He's using the Babylonian rendering of the reign of the king. Remember, Jeremiah is using a Palestinian rendering of the reign of the king. For Daniel, the reign goes like this. There's the year of ascension where you become the king. The next year is your first year. The year after that, your second. The year after that, your third. Palestinian rendering would be the year of your ascension is your first year. The year after that, your second. The year after that, your third. The year after that, your fourth. An example of this is if you've ever been over in Europe and you get on an elevator. Here in America, if you get on an elevator and you go up one floor, you're on the second floor. In many places in Europe, you get on an elevator and you go up one floor and you're on the first floor. It could mess you up. Now, imagine hundreds of years from now, somebody signs documentation, and there was an 
author in England who wrote about something that happened on the second floor and an author in America who wrote about something that happened on the third floor, and the people say, there's a contradiction here. It must not be true. It's the same thing here in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, okay? Just a different rendering of how you start the first year of the reign. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, uh, I'm sorry, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily portions of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Don't think for a minute that that's unimportant. They're in the midst of exile. And there's a book that's written that basically says to the people of God, God is going to preserve his people. In the midst of it, there's four characters that he picks out as the principal characters of the story, and they are all from the tribe of the promised seed from whom the scepter is never going to depart. That's just amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord right there, just by itself. Just that these four guys are from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, and Aniah he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. There you have it. The tale of two kingdoms, and it's set up perfectly. First, in the tale of two kingdoms, we see the tale of two kings. We see on the one hand, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, and on the other hand, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah, an ungodly king. Listen to this. In 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was, uh, Zebedah, was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah, of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In the days, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. He was an awful king. His father was a good king. He was an awful king. He was put on the throne by an Egyptian pharaoh named Necho, as he attempted to exercise control over Syria Palestine. Think about these two major superpowers, Egypt in the south, just below Israel, Babylon above Israel. They are fighting for 
dominance in the region and the crossroads between the two is this little sliver of land and a small country called Israel. When Josiah was killed in battle, people had enthroned his son, Jehoahaz, who represented an anti-Egyptian faction. This situation lasted for three months while Nico was busy in Haran. Nico basically deposed Jehoahaz and sent him off as a captive in Egypt. Pro-Egyptian Jehoiakim was then placed on the throne with the expectation that he would be loyal to Egypt. Because they're all afraid of the Babylonians coming down from the north. The situation changed dramatically when Nebuchadnezzar gained control of that region following the Battle of Carchemish. Remember this one from your ancient history. There he put down the Egyptians for good and established their dominance in the region. The guy on the throne in Egypt, when the Babylonians established their dominance over the region in the Battle of Carchemish in 605, by wiping out the Egyptians, was Jehoiakim, who had been loyal to the Egyptians. Jehoiakim played the role of reluctant Babylonian vassal for several years, but after Nebuchadnezzar's failure to invade Egypt in 601, he again broke with Babylon and sought to support Egypt in the rebellion. This disloyalty proved fatal and led to the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, ultimately finishing them off. And that started in 597. So there you get a little picture of the history of this that's basically summed up in this phrase in the third year of the reign of of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. In the next verse, you see that there are things that are carried off. You assume that the king was probably carried off as well. But note that in this tale of two kings, here's what you don't see. You don't see here is a godly king in a godly nation and a godless king in a godless nation, and they battle to see who's supreme. No. You see a godless king in a godless nation who comes through, wipes out a region, and a king who was faithless to God happens to be on the throne when God judges his people. See, we love to sort of reduce the Bible to good guys and bad guys. It's not that simple. And one of the reasons it's not that simple is they're all bad guys. Amen. Just like you and I are all bad guys. So if you want to understand the difference between these two kingdoms, you don't necessarily just look at the two kings. There has to be something else. Not only is there a tale of two kings, but there's also a tale of two gods. You see, in the ancient Near East, when you go to battle, you go and call upon your God. This idea of these secular nations like we have today, not, not, not so much in the ancient Near East. In fact, that's very recent when you look at world history. The idea has always been that you call upon God to go before you in battle. You want to fight on the right side and God to be with you on your side as you go into battle. In the ancient Near East, if you defeated a foe, you always brought their gods with you as captives, just like their people are captives. Because when you defeat their gods, you say to them, our God is stronger than your God. 
belong to us. Your God bows down to our God. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and doesn't just take the Jehoiakim. He goes to the temple. He takes away artifacts. statement about his God compared to the God of Israel, which would lead to the dejection, the further dejection of the people of Israel. Remember, they're not reading Daniel. They're living it. So they don't have, for example, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. The Lord gave him into his hands. Folks, the Lord is doing this. God is sending his people away into exile. God is allowing them to be wiped out. God is allowing the nation to fall. God is doing this. And if there is a message in the book of Daniel, that's the message. God is in control. See, oftentimes we like to say that God is in control when things are going the way we want them to go. And all of a sudden when things don't go the way we want them to go, our first question is, where is God? Why? Because according to our theology, when God is in control and doing what he's supposed to do and paying attention, he's making stuff happen the way he and I agree it ought to happen. But if he's not agreeing with me, then he's slumbering or sleeping or falling down on the job, and we kind of go, you know what, God, I know you're busy and everything, but can you fix this? Because this is not how my life is supposed to go. Let's look first internally and then externally to see the hand of God on all this. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs, chief of the eunuchs. Chapter, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. Chapter 2, verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Then in chapter 2, beginning verse 20, Daniel praises God for giving him what these men have already said only comes from God. Chapter 2, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Look at chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Look down with me at the end of verse 45. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Look at verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Let's go to chapter 3 and look beginning in verse 17. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Go down to verse 25. 
He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Go down to verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Now let's go to chapter 4. And look beginning in verse 34. This is Nebuchadnezzar after his seven years of what we would call schizophrenia. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Yes, this is a tale of two gods, but only one of them is God. Nebuchadnezzar's God's not God. And throughout this, what do we see? That God is in control. But here's the question. If God is in control, why are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and all the other young men taken away, castrated? And then made to serve a pagan king. Why? For that, we go outside. The judgment of God against Israel. Habakkuk 1.5. I, 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 I did an event a while back. This is several years ago. And it was a missions conference. And they had as their theme, the theme was beyond belief. And it came from Habakkuk 1.5. Again, the theme of the conference is beyond belief. And their theme verses of Acts 1 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, even if someone told you. Wow. Missions conference. Beyond belief. Look among the nations. I'm doing something that you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you. And so they wanted me to preach from Habakkuk 1 5 at the missions conference. Small problem. I kept reading. Listen to 6 through 11. For behold, what's the thing that God is doing that you wouldn't believe even if somebody told you? Look among the nations. There's something happening that you wouldn't believe even if somebody told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. There's Babylon. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At the king, they scoff. At the rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. What's the thing that God's doing that you wouldn't believe? I'm going to bring a wicked king to judge my people. 
But wait a minute, God. We're your people. How are you going to use a godless nation to punish your people? Is there another godly one? Find me a godly one, and I'll use them. Oh, you can't? Okay, here come the Babylonians. Jeremiah 5.15. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, it is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. We could go on and on and on and on. They're here because of wickedness and sin. They're here because of kings like Jehoiakim. They're here because of idolatry. Here's the irony. They serve the one true and living God, and for whatever reason, they keep going after other gods. And God says, you want to go after other gods? I can arrange that. God, we want a king so that we can be like the other nations. Really? You want to be like the other nations? I can arrange that. Wicked. God judged them. Remember those two questions. The first question, is our God really God? That's the first question. Is our God really God? The answer is yes. And he proves that even in the midst of the most horrible circumstances. Have you ever been there? Is our God really God? I know you've asked that question. I've prayed with some of you as you ask that question. Why is this happening if God is really God? But understand the theology on the other side of that question. Here's the theology on the other side of that question. If God's really God, then bad stuff shouldn't happen to people who belong to him. Really? The spotless, sinless Lamb of God was crushed and killed by the Father for the Father's glory, but you shouldn't experience bad stuff. Who do you think you are? Do you have any idea what you deserve? Any idea what justice would look like in your life today based on what you thought, said, and did on yesterday? Have you any idea? We still live in a fallen world. God owes us nothing. He's sovereign over all things. Like I said, the last time I checked, the death rate was one per person. It awaits us all. It awaits us all. The question, is our God truly God, is not answered by your circumstances. Daniel screams that to us. (laughs) Is our God really God? Really, you asking that question? 
Because Nebuchadnezzar's got all these guys, and they can't figure out his dreams. Who can? God's people can. Really, you're asking if God's really God? They throw us in the fiery furnace, and we didn't burn. And we weren't alone, by the way. You're asking if our God is really God? Are you serious? Really? They threw Daniel in a lion's den with lions who were hungry, and they did not eat him. Really? Is our God really God? Yes, he is. The creator and sustainer of the universe, and nothing catches him by surprise. And he will even turn your trials into a testimony. This is the only thing that keeps us from spiraling out of control when difficulties come. Amen? Yes, our God is God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. There's also the action of Nebuchadnezzar against Daniel. As we see this God, even in their names, look at what he does at the end. Verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, from the tribe of Judah. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Now, Daniel's name means my judge is God. Dan and El. Dan, judge. El from Elohim. My judge is God. This Belshazzar means something akin to the protector of the king. Hananiah's name, again, you see Yah in there. Hananiah's name means Yahweh has shown grace. He changed his name to Shadrach. Combination of Aku, a Sumerian or Elamite moon god, Ku, is gracious. Mishael, which is very similar to Micah. Who is what God is? Micah is who is like God. Micah, Mishael. He changed his name to Mishael or Misa Aku. Who is what Aku is? Azariah. Again, you see Yahweh there. Mishael, you see El, Elohim. Azariah, you hear Yahweh again. It means Yahweh has helped. He changed his name to Abidnego or Abednego, servant of the god Nebo. All four of these young men have names that speak to who their god is. All four of these young men are renamed to speak to who Babylon's gods are. Yet, interestingly enough, as you go through this book, though Daniel was renamed, and even when he's forgotten, the queen, when she sees the handwriting on the wall, does not say, hey, I remember a guy named Belteshazzar. He should be about 80 years old now. She says, how about Daniel? Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. How about Daniel? Here's what's so ironic about this. Their names are changed in order to strip them 
of their God-given identity. And if you say to the average Christian, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they don't know who you're talking about. You have to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We still allow their identity to be robbed from them. Not only is this a tale of two kings and two gods, but it's a tale of two cultures. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. That's very important, of the royal family and the nobility. Youths, so we know they're of the royal family, we know they're of the, the nobility. Youths, without blemish, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. So at least eight things about these guys are very important. This is not random. This is not random. He wants specific people from Israel for specific tasks. What is that task? And teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. We're going to change their names. We're going to change their, 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 their learning. And we're going to change their diet. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Listen to this from George Schwab. The youths were expected to eat new foods, were given new names, and forced to learn the culture of Babylon. They were being systematically indoctrinated and distanced from their Israelite heritage. At the end of the process, they would no longer be Jews, but Babylonians. They would have new identities. That was the goal. That was the goal, to destroy their identities. How do we destroy their identities? Through education. You know the great irony? The great irony is that people run to this passage of Scripture in order to justify sending Christian children to government schools. When the fact of the matter is, this text teaches us that if you want to destroy someone's identity, you have to re-educate them. There are some myths about Daniel that are important in this regard. Number one, there's a myth that Daniel and his friends were very small boys. In fact, they're often referred to as the three Hebrew boys, like the little kids, you know, eight, nine, ten years old or so. Secondly, that Daniel and his friends gained their knowledge from the Babylonians. That's why they were so brilliant, because they learned the Babylonian stuff better than other people did. They did better in their education. Thirdly, Daniel and his friends represent the ideal, i.e., we should be willing to send our children to the Babylonians of our day so that they can gain knowledge and status within the context of Babylonian culture. Here's the reality. Number one, Daniel and his friends were young men between 15 and 20 years old. Secondly, Daniel and his friends had gained their knowledge from the covenant community in Israel. 
Listen to the requirements again. He says, beginning at verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So first, the families were important. He wanted them to have a certain family background so that they could be useful to him. Secondly, youths without blemish, he wanted them to be of good appearance, so there's no defects, and they're very attractive. Skillful in all wisdom. Why? Because they've already completed their education by the ages of 15 to 20. They're already very well educated, and they've demonstrated the fact that they're skillful in all knowledge. Not only were they educated in the covenant community of Israel, but they were the best and brightest at the end of their Israeli education. endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's place. It means that they were sharp young men who already demonstrated the kind of not just skill and intelligence, but also the kind of demeanor and personal presence that made them capable to stand before the king long before they learned their first Babylonian word. You see, the message here in this clash of cultures is not that we run to the Babylonians to gain their knowledge so that we can be elevated in their culture. No. The fact of the matter is the message is the opposite. When we understand who God is, God is the one who makes us knowledgeable, skillful. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not just downloading information, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What we see here is not just the superiority of their gods. What's the superiority of their culture? Because it is ordered by God. So much so that we'll see next week that when they finish their training, the young men are ten times better. Why? Because they really picked up on that Babylonian stuff. So Folks, this is the occult. They're learning the occult. They're learning occultic practices. And note also that when it comes down to it, and the king needs somebody to do what these guys were trained to do, nobody can do it. Daniel does not come back and serve the king because he learned occultic practices better than the people of the occult. He goes back and prays to God. He doesn't even do what they taught him to do. So far from being a picture that would encourage us to embrace the Babylonian culture and to see ourselves as part of the Babylonian kingdom, this is a picture that says you don't need the Babylonians, they need you. God is enough. See, when we find ourselves outnumbered and we find ourselves in pressure situations, You have a tendency to turn to whatever's close. 
fact of the matter is, Daniel says to all of us, for you turn is to God. Two questions. Remember those questions. Number one, is our God truly God? Secondly, will he, and really, can he redeem us? The answer to both of those is a resounding yes. But hear this. Daniel and his friends died slaves. They did not die in a rebuilt Jerusalem and a reconstituted Israel holding their hands up high and victorious before Almighty God, and yet their God is still God. Daniel and his friends were castrated. They did not have children to be the next generation to go and change the culture. And yet their God is God. Daniel and his friends served not just the Babylonian king, but also the Medes and the Persians. They were slaves to everybody. And yet, their God is God. And they learned something that you and I need to learn. Regardless of where you find yourself, the most important thing is that you identify yourself with the covenant community of God's redeemed people who just happens to live wherever you live. That's who we are. It's just not a picture of who we are as Christians. We are redeemed. We find ourselves in Christ. And yet there is a world out there the kingdoms of this world out there that is absolutely at odds with us, absolutely against us, absolutely opposed to us, always seemingly finding new ways to try to oppress us and oppose us. And when that happens, all of us need to remember, number one, our God is God, and number two, our God will redeem us regardless of the circumstances. And that does not have to mean Everything looks the way we think it ought to look. Is it okay if God redeems you in the midst of slavery and leaves you in slavery? If it's not, you don't understand the gospel. Is it okay that God redeems you in the midst of bondage and leaves you in the midst of that bondage, never to get you out? If the answer is no, you don't understand what it means to be redeemed. Is it okay that God redeems you as a single and never gives you a spouse? If the answer is no, you don't understand redemption. Is it okay that God redeems you in a bad marriage and you spend the rest of your life in that bad marriage and it never gets better? If your answer is no, you do not understand redemption. Is it okay that God redeems you in the midst of a culture 
absolutely gone astray and in your lifetime never writes the ship? If the answer is no, you do not understand redemption. Is it all right that God redeems you and doesn't save every one of your kids? If the answer is no, you do not understand redemption. Is it all right that God redeems you and you never, ever become wealthy or healthy or prosperous? If the answer is no, you do not understand redemption. Is it okay that God redeems you and yet you're sick in your body and or your mind? If your answer no, that's not okay, then you don't understand redemption because you think that God has created you for Babylon. <laughs> that's not Daniel's message. Daniel's message is God has me in Babylon, but he didn't create me for Babylon. What did he create me for? Here is the beauty and I don't want to step on chapter 2 before we get to chapter 2. I cannot imagine what it felt like for Daniel to stand there and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nobody would tell him what the dream was or what it meant. Daniel goes and he prays and he comes back. And again, in the midst of captivity, We'll deal with it in more detail, but for now, just listen to this. They're in captivity. Daniel, he's gone. Here's Daniel, who basically by this point says, uh, my country's gone, being burned with fire. I'm not going to have any children. My line is going to be gone. It's over for me. And they're teaching me these occultic, I got nothing. But Daniel, who has the ability to interpret dreams, All of a sudden, it's a call. Our lives are in danger. Why? Because the king had a dream and we can't interpret it. He won't even tell us what it is. He goes to God and he prays. And not only does Daniel get the dream and its interpretation so that he can stay alive, but here's what he gets to say to Nebuchadnezzar. There's four kingdoms. You're number one. You don't last. Number two's coming, they're going to wipe you out. They're not going to last. Number three's coming, and they're going to wipe out number two, but they're not going to last. Why? Because there is a kingdom coming going to stand forever. Not only is God going to get my people out of here, but my king will reign supreme over all of heaven and over all of the earth. I may not ever see it, but I'm standing here to tell you, king, you won't either. The difference between you and me is that even in the midst of captivity, I am part of the kingdom that will never die. Even in the midst of captivity, all you have to hope for is that you don't see the other army marching to take over. I've already experienced that, and I'm still here. What I have to hope for is that there is a day coming when the king of kings and the Lord of lords will vindicate himself. I mean, maybe you're a slave now. 
I'm his son forever. So do with me as you must. And I'm going to be okay. That's what Daniel teaches us. Not just be a good little boy and try really hard and be like that. That's not Daniel's message. Daniel's message is if you're a good little boy and you study hard and you're attractive and articulate and intelligent, God may send an army to come and destroy you, kill your family, carry you off to a foreign land, castrate you so that you never have a future or a family, and then teach you occultic practices and have you spend the rest of your days in a land that's not your own. That's what Daniel got for being a good, smart, hard-studying little boy. He didn't have kids. He's got a book in the Bible. There are ten thousands between Catholicism and the Bible. Papal authority. Catholicism believes in the Pope's infallibility in matters of faith and morals when speaking ex cathedra. The Bible emphasizes the authority of Scripture alone without a central human authority figure. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Transubstantiation. Catholicism teaches the doctrine of transubstantiation, which asserts that the bread and the wine and the Eucharist become the actual body and blood of Christ. The Bible teaches that the bread and the wine are symbolic rather than a literal transformation. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Intercession of saints. Catholicism believes in the intercession of saints, asking them to pray on behalf of the living. The Bible teaches direct prayer to God without the need for intercession. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Purgatory. Catholicism believes in the existence of a temporal state of purification for souls who have died in a state of grace, but with remaining venial sins. You go into something called um, purgatory, and then that's when you get judged by the things you did while you were alive. The Bible has no support for the concept of purgatory. And as it is appointed for men to die once, after this, the judgment. Veneration of Mary. Catholicism honors Mary with titles like Mother of God and Queen of Heaven. The Bible teaches that Mary was the earthly mother of Jesus without elevating her to a status of divine intercession. Had it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Indulgences. Historical Catholicism reveals indulgences were sold as a means to reduce time in purgatory for sins. The Bible has no support for the practice of indulgences. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Prayers for the dead. Catholicism offers prayers for the souls of the departed. 
especially during Mass and in the practice of the Rosary. The Bible has no exhortation to pray for the dead. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, judgment. Confession to a priest. Catholicism encourages confession of sins to a priest for absolution. The Bible teaches direct confession of sins to God without the need of an intermediary. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Marriage of priests. Catholicism imposes celibacy on priests. The Bible allows marriage for clergy. The bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. The use of icons and statues. Catholicism utilizes religious images, icons and statues for veneration and devotion. The second of the Ten Commandments forbids the making of graven images. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Does she hold your like your hand? Please think about this. Will you do that for me? I will not, only because I grew up religious, and I decided to not be religious. What do you mean religious? I was Catholic, went to church, did my communion. I'm not a Catholic. I'm not religious. There's not a religious bone in my body. Jesus was murdered by religious people. They hate genuine Christians. Did you know that if you watch this video until the end, YouTube will see it as an important video and push it, which means more people will hear the gospel. I personally think we just died. And where does the life go from the body? It's your soul that's speaking to me now. It's not your body. Your body's changed in the last 10 years. You were just a little girl, but you're the same soul. You just gathered knowledge and experience. So your soul is your life. Have I ever been born again? In what way? Well, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're not entering heaven. So we better make sure you're born again. What do you mean by born again? Well, I tell you, you only have a few minutes before class. Yeah. So you want me to speed this up? I'm going to give you a, a nutshell. You ready? Did you ever read the Bible? The world's biggest selling book of all time. Do you know why it's so loved? I don't. It tells you what happens after you die. Mm. tells you how to get everlasting life. gives you your origins. gives you a reason and purpose for life. gives proof of God's existence. But it's also the world's most hated book because it talks about immorality. And people don't like that. What do you think the Bible says about how to get everlasting life? Take a stand. To follow God's rules. What are the rules? I don't know. But you've got a conscience. Yeah. What does your conscience tell you? Be a good person. Not to lie and steal, commit adultery and murder. Is that right? Yeah. It's all written on your heart. Yeah. That's not the process of evolution. Why would evolution do something like that? Conscience is annoying. The word conscience actually means with knowledge. Con is with, science is knowledge. So when you die, the Bible says you're going to stand before God. How are you going to do on Judgment Day? Are you a good person? I think I'm a good person, but if I get judged for not following a deity, then I fail. Well, you wouldn't be judged for not following a deity. That's something you're not doing not what you're doing that's wrong. But let's look at some of the commandments. I'm going to show you why I need to be born again, okay. why you need God to give you a new heart, new desires, and forgive your sins. Okay. When did you last look at pornography? <laughs> Dang. Tell it be a false witness or lie. How many lies do you think you've told in your life? A lot. <laughs> so you're a liar? Have you ever taken something that belongs to somebody else, even if it's small? No. Have you used God's name in vain? Yes. Do you love your mum? I do. Do you ever use her name as a cuss word? No, never. Because you respect her. Yes, sir. You don't respect the God that gave you a mother and gave you a wife because you've taken his holy name and used it as a cuss word. A little embarrassing here, but Jesus said if you look with lust, 
commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with a lust? Yes. So, you told me you're a liar, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart. I really don't know if I can trust you when you say you haven't stolen someone because you told me you're a liar. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Guilty. Heaven or hell. I'm fine with hell. I'm not. I care about you. I don't want you to go to hell. You're a human being. I love life. I love the blue sky, the sound of birds, love and laughter, music, friends and family. I love all these gifts that God's lavished upon you, so you don't want to end up in hell. Have you ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? It's saying that God is paying you in death for your sin. Like a judge looks at a criminal, yeah. committed multiple murders, but he keeps saying, I'm a good person. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. Mm. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what we're paying you. This is what you've earned. And else the sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. And there's something in you that says, oh, I don't want to die. I had a friend, he was 18 years old, he got cancer. And his friend said, spend the last six months in brothels. But he wasn't interested because he found something far stronger than a sex drive. It was his will to live. Something just came into his heart that says, oh, I don't want to die. That's the God-given will to live. So Elsa, listen to it. You know, God has no pleasure in your death. Now, let's see how your knowledge is. What did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? Repent. No, that won't help you. It's like saying to a judge, I'm really sorry for committing the crime. I'll never do it again. The judge is going to say, you should be sorry and shouldn't do it again. You're going to jail. So repentance can't save you in man's court and it can't save you in God's court on judgment day. You actually know what God did. God did something wonderful. But because you don't understand it, you don't value it. You heard of Jesus dying on the cross? Yes. Everybody has. And also, if you can get a grip of this, it will change everything for you. Ten commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on the cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, the judge will let you go if someone pays your fine. So if someone's paid your fine, you're guilty, but you can leave. God can take the death sentence off you legally because Jesus paid the fine in full on the cross. And then he rose from the dead and defeated death. And all you have to do, according to the Bible, is find everlasting life. It's so simple a child can understand it. You repent of your sins, you turn from them, and put your trust in Jesus. Don't trust your goodness, trust the Savior. Like you trust a parachute if you jump out of a plane. You don't trust yourself to save yourself, flapping your arms, you just trust the parachute. So you repent, and you trust in Jesus. And the minute you do that, you've got God's promise, and you cannot lie. You're granted your everlasting life as a free gift. Not because you're good, but because God is good, and kind, and rich, and mercy. Just making sense? Kind of. I'm, I'm sorry. It's just... I'm a little concerned about time, but yes, I, I get what you're trying to say. Yeah, just say to your teacher, sorry I'm late. This is the most important thing ever. This is what you're going to spend forever. Not just who you're going to marry or what you're going to do for a job. This is your eternal salvation. So what do you think about what we talked about? I think you're right. I think I should probably be reborn again. I think I should reconsider everything that I do. And I honestly am very grateful for this talk. I... I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like there was something about you. That's why I came up to you, and that's why I wanted to do that interview. So thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Well, I'm going to give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible. It'll boost your faith in God's Word. And I know you've got to go, Daniel, but thank you so much for having patience with me and for listening to what I had to say. Do you have a Bible? Uh, yes, I do. I'm going to give you a Gospel of John, and you better get out of here before that teacher has your head on a plate. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Well, I don't have the will to live. I would have been dead, and it wasn't too expensive to die. 
say that again, you've got no will to live. I do not. Do you get suicidal thoughts? I actually am on medication for it because I have depression. It runs in the family. Everybody has depression. They're not insane. They say you've got mental disease. Just the opposite is the truth. If you're depressed about life, you're not an unthinking, insane person with mental problems. You're an intelligent person that knows this life is futile because of death and pain and suffering, disease and hurricanes. If you're not insane, you don't have a mental disease, everyone gets depressed. Or if you're a thinking person, gets depressed. And there's hundreds of millions of people across the world are depressed. Yeah. And so they should be because death is coming for each of us. But if you repent and trust in Jesus, God will make you a brand new person on the inside. If you want to get out of this life, just do what the Bible says, and it will make you brand new on the inside. You'll be born again with a new heart, new desires, and no longer will you be subject to demons and spirits that want to take your life. So the Bible says Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. Mm-hmm. He's the God of this world. He has access to your mind. Mm-hmm. And he incites people to murder, to rape, commit adultery, to lie, steal, blaspheme. Mm-hmm. He's the one that wants to take your life from you. So yield your life to God and say, God, I need your help. You're the creator of the universe. You made the flowers, the birds, the sun, the moon, the stars, puppies, kittens. Mm-hmm. All these beautiful things are the genius of God's creative hand. So just yield your life to him. Please think about this. Will you do that for me? I will not. Only because I grew up religious and I decided to not be religious. What do you mean religious? I was Catholic, went to church, did my communion. I'm not a Catholic. I'm not religious. There's not a religious bone in my body. Jesus was murdered by religious people. They hate genuine Christians. Religious people think they can earn everlasting life by doing religious works. Mm. And it can't come that way. There's an old saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Have you ever heard that? No. It comes from hundreds of years ago when what they used to do is take bathwater after that, after baby, and toss it out of the second-story window onto the street mm. in England. The saying is, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater something valuable in that filthy water. Mm. And so there's the filthy water of religion. Don't toss out baby of everlasting life because that's what God is offering you. When you become a Christian, you'll be set free from religious works. Mm. The word religion means bondage. So please think about this. Don't just write it off. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater <laughs> because I care about you. God cares about you. He's the love of your soul. There's not a hair on your head that God doesn't know about. Mm. He knows intimately the middle atom of your eyeball because he made it. That's how intimately familiar God is with you as a human being. Those you by name, how many years are on your head, those the thoughts of your heart, and you've seen the cry of your heart, so please soften yourself towards God, push Catholicism aside, push all religion aside, and suddenly really just think about this. Can I give you a book that I've written? Sure. Called Scientific Facts from the Bible. Not a religious book. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to give you the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, another little book that I wrote called Save Yourself from Pain. Okay? okay? And you've been a real sport. Thank you for listening to me. And thank you for being so honest at what you confided. Let me get that book for you. Okay. Here's the book. That's my name. Okay. Isn't that a weird name? No. Well, that's the Gospel of John. Looks like a bundle of money, <laughs> but it's more precious than all the money in the world tells you how to get the last in life, and there's the save yourself from pain book. Here's two $5 in and out cards for you. And you've got a couple of friends? There's a couple for your friends. Oh, thank you so much. A lot of people are going to be praying for you. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 
200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith and much more. Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. Ancient man, brute or brilliant? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. There are two different accounts of our history, one based on man's ideas and the other on God's word. According to man's ideas about history, humans evolved from ape-like creatures and were originally primitive and unintelligent. Evolutionists expect our past to be littered with primitive tools. Advanced civilizations, they say, are relatively new. But the Bible's history records a much different picture. Mankind was created in God's image, intelligent from the beginning. Genesis even tells us that a few generations after Adam, humans were building cities and working with bronze and iron. Man was never a primitive brute. Discover more about the true history of life and the universe when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Please spend a few minutes at AnswersRadio.com. In his final words to his understudy, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. He wrote, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. The Bible speaks very favorably of soldiers. When a Roman centurion came and asked Jesus to heal his servant, Jesus didn't say, go and stop being a soldier. On the contrary, he said, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. In the book of Exodus, the Lord said, thou shalt not murder. And he also commanded Moses and Joshua to fight against the Amalekites. Murder is an act to destroy another human being out of hatred, whereas a national army is a God-ordained defense. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Our soldiers deserve our respect and our honor. They lay down their lives, some of them paying the ultimate sacrifice to defend our freedom from those who want to take it and protect the ones we love. They are an example, a reminder that freedom isn't free, for even the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life so that we would have freedom from sin and from death, paying the ultimate sacrifice out of love when we understand the text. There's almost no piece of advice we hear more often in movies and kids specials than be true to yourself. What a terrible piece of advice. First of all, what, what part of ourselves are we supposed to be true to? Just look deep down into myself. I, if we're honest, if anyone's honest, we, we don't always like what we find there. We're, we're people who are wrestling with one another, wrestling inside of ourselves. And I think when people say that advice, deep down they know that it's really not true. Because if you find someone who's being true to their self as a royal jerk, let alone as a terrorist, a murderer, a bigot, a racist, someone may say, well, this is really deep down my authentic identity. And we would all say, well, that's not a very good identity to have. We must be giving better counsel to people than simply to find a true self, which may not be the self worth following. 
on the couch, minding your own beeswax. Maybe you're scrolling the tubes of you, the top flora. You've been reading this weird rectangular object with numerous pages filled with words that are bound together. I think it's called a book. And you see or read something about being careful what you think because evil forces can read your mind and take advantage of you this way. And as a Christian, you kind of freak out a little bit. You stop your scrolling and you put down your rectangular object and you're like, why? Is this true? And I'm here to tell you, let's slow down. Let's go pick up the other rectangular object on your desk, hopefully right next to you, that you're reading every day. Let's look in there. Is this true? Can Satan and demons have access to our thoughts? So I believe that this is really a question about omniscience, which is the ability to know everything. First, remember that the Bible teaches that Satan is a created being, a being who rebelled against God. Now, while he possesses significant power, he is not omniscient or omnipotent like God. He doesn't know everything. He's not all-powerful, and he doesn't have access to knowledge in the same way that God does. This limitation on knowledge is vital when considering whether Satan can read minds. It's important to understand that he's not God's opposite or his equal. He does not possess the same attributes as God. God is very unique in this regard. Now, I believe that there's a spiritual element where we allow Satan to know more than he should, but this is not done by accident, okay? This can be done through occultic practices, willingly allowing ourselves to be open to this stuff, stuff that God says to stay away from for a reason. But even then, Satan's knowledge is not comparable to God. Even if we give him full right access, it's not the same thing. Now, all throughout scripture, we see the pattern that only God knows all things, like reading people's hearts and minds, which, by the way, if only God can do, it's one reason why Jesus being God in the flesh is so hard to unsee when we see him doing things that only God can do. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, though, it's important to note that while Satan cannot read our minds, he can observe our behavior and, and manipulate our thoughts based on external cues. It's not like Satan hasn't been studying humans for millennia. His cunning strategies and understanding of human nature allow him to tempt and deceive us. He exploits our weaknesses and desires, seeking to lead us astray from God's path. In a variety of biblical accounts, we see no evidence of Satan directly accessing human thoughts. For instance, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, right, he used external means, like quoting scripture and appealing to Jesus' hunger, rather than directly reading his mind. So, no, Satan and the demons cannot read our minds, all right? But we must remain vigilant against his schemes, and the Bible advises us to guard our hearts and our minds, to resist the devil and to put on the armor of God and to withstand his attacks. And, guys, this is a good thing, but there's no basis for Satan reading our minds. Not only is this consistent with the metaphysical understanding of God's attributes, but it's also biblical. In other words, only your creator who made you exist and holds you in existence is able to know all things, including your thoughts. Think of Satan as the ultimate spiritual groomer. He's able to woo you in the same way an evil person can because he fixates on your weaknesses and exploits them for his purposes. Also, this is uh, on another fun fact, totally different topic, uh, but I think it's really interesting. But Satan and the demons also cannot take on human form like angels can. 
Uh, we never once see this in scripture with one exception. And now, I haven't looked into this a great deal, and I'm no expert on the topic, but the only place I ever see that pattern disrupted is with the Nephilim. And the only person I've ever really known to do a lot of research on this is the great late Dr. Michael Heiser. So I would suggest checking out his uh, channel, French Pot 321, and also uh, reading the variety of works that he has about this topic, because I would like to know more about that. But other than that, it is very unique. You do not see demons take on human form. Now, people that I know who have been unfortunate enough to see any visual of a demonic being describe them as just black, like the opposite of light. My bestie, who used to be in the New Age, had an experience with a demonic entity, and she describes it as like a dark black mass of hole. It was like there was no light in it at all but it wasn't human. Like it didn't have a human form in the same way that angels would have. Another thing are ghostly apparitions. I find it very interesting that disembodied spirits being demons, I find it very interesting that that's how they can masquerade. But none of them look like this. None of them go up and walk and talk with you like Gabriel did or like the two angels when they, were, they went to get Lot. Um, back in Genesis, there's multiple occurrences in scripture where angels appear as if they were actually a human. So I don't know why my brain went on that. I just thought it was really, really interesting um, in doing this research, but I thought I would bring that up. Maybe I'll follow up on a longer video in the future, uh, but I think that would be an interesting topic to research and look more into. Now, if there's anybody watching that might know a little bit about that topic, um, let us know what it is in the comments below. It would be interesting to kind of Share people's thoughts about that, uh, the biblical view. Uh, if there's any research that you've done, uh, please share it in the comments below. Okay, so back to the topic at hand. I just want to wrap up and say that uh, I think Satan's inability to read minds is comforting. Um, and I think that our focus should be on developing a closer relationship with God. We need to know that we are in a spiritual war and the devil hates you. We draw close to God knowing that he is our protector and infinitely more powerful than Satan. So rather than fearing Satan's limited knowledge, we find security in God's watchful care over us. And in Romans, it's Romans 8, chapter 38 through 39, it reminds us that nothing, not even the schemes of the enemy, can separate us from God's love. So these are my thoughts on this topic. What do you think? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think I missed something? Let me know in the comments below. And as always, please check out the description for more information. By the way, I know so many of you ask these questions because you're wanting to learn more and dig deeper. And I want to tell you about my seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I received my bachelor's in religious studies, and I am currently a student there getting my master's in Christian apologetics. I am greatly indebted to SES because they have a no-nonsense stance on biblical and objective truth, and they have really helped strengthen my Christian walk by holding me accountable scripturally and theologically. So if you want more information, uh, go to ses.edu backslash Melissa. It will be in the description. They offer all kinds of degrees and certificates, so be sure to check them out. Just a note for me, Melissa Canchola, the host of Truth Be Told Radio. Um, I used to believe in the Eklund thing that they're like fallen angels that mix with humans, but I have my mind of what that I've learned from my pastor that is more of two two different kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. And then in 
and humans. It's like there's the, the evil and there's the, the righteous, the ones that have been redeemed by God. And so I don't really agree with the Nephilim teaching anymore. Uh, so I don't really recommend that. Uh, I actually read that one of the books that he had, um, I think his name Michael Heidrich says. And um, that's it for now. And now I'm going to play. This is when we understand the text. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Whoa, time out, the egalitarian interrupts. The verse right before it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And verse 25 says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So a husband must submit too. Well, the fact is, that's correct. Wait, really? Yes, really. A wife must submit to her husband, and a husband must also submit, but not to his wife. The instruction, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, is followed by three contexts of submission, wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters. But the text reminds husbands, fathers, and masters, all of whom are men, by the way, that they have a master they must submit to, and he is the Lord Christ. A wife submitting to her husband is to be a picture of the way the whole church submits to Christ. To submit is to yield to authority. Does Christ submit to the authority of the church? Of course not. So a husband does not yield to the authority of his wife, since God has given headship to the husband as Christ has headship over the church. But as an imitator of Jesus, the husband must love his wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Colossians 3:18 and 19 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Countercultural? You betcha. But as Galatians 1.10 says, if we were trying to please men or women, we would not be servants of Christ when we understand the text. One reason you can't just think of Jesus as a great teacher is that Jesus claimed to be more than that. You'll remember at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think that I am? And Peter answers on behalf of all of them, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, you're right. God has revealed this to you. And you can even see the tremendous truth claims about Jesus in the shape of the gospel. Jesus is an amazing teacher. And so the gospels have things like Matthew 5 to 7 that contain the Sermon on the Mount. But think of it, a third of the Synoptic Gospels and up to maybe a half of the Gospel of John focus on the last week of Jesus' life. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come to teach. He came to die and to be raised again from the dead because he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Ancient man, a genius? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Did you know many of the most ancient cultures had a complex knowledge of astronomy? Structures they built after the global flood are so precise, they must have even known Earth wobbles as it spins. They knew this caused the constellations to shift. Many cultures also knew that Saturn had rings and that the stars Sirius A and B are actually two stars, even though they appear as a single star in the night sky. The ancients must have used telescopes or lenses. Ancient man was not unintelligent, as evolutionists teach. 
Humans were created in God's image and have been using their minds to accomplish great things since the beginning. There's so much more to discover about the true history of mankind at AnswersRadio.com. Find out, too, about our creation museum at AnswersRadio.com. I'm telling you. What's our church about? There you go. But it's church. No church is perfect. That does not keep us from striving to be the best local church that we can be. But please note, as you go about the business of church shopping, not the greatest phrase for evangelicals, but keep in mind, you're never going to find one that just checks every single box like you're cutting for a house on HGTV. I envision at least separate areas to entertain. Not really sure about the color of the countertop. I like the color. I thought this home featured a... Uh, There's nothing that we can do about the height of the ceiling. Instead, realize that you are looking for direction. Not perfection, but direction. Is the church word-centric? Is the church that you're considering driven by the Bible? If it is, that's a very good start. Of course, secondarily, they must have the essentials squared away. The five solas get that job done, describing what are the basics. You need grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, revealed in the Bible alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the essentials. If a church has that, you're doing really well. What else? Is that it? What? What else does a church need to be doing in order to be a church? It needs to be disciplining on occasion. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a or a tax collector. <laughs> it needs to be a church. When they see a wayward sheep, they go about the business of rescuing that individual to bring them back in the fold. A church that never does that rightly cannot be defined as a church. Give you some effort. Don't think of me as what you think of me. However, there are some slight intangibles that need to be taking place in a church that maybe aren't written in a file cabinet statement of faith, but are simply experienced. What's the attitude of the church towards sin? What is the tone of the elders regarding false teaching? Not just the one who teaches falsely, but who is uncorrectable, who resists correction. If it is low and low, you might want to go somewhere else because these elements are crucial. If your church does not take sin seriously and does not esteem robust theology, you're, you're entering into something that's a very flabby situation at best and potentially one that you just might want to give a pass to. No, hard pass. Those are the marks of what makes a church a church. But what's it supposed to be doing? What are we trying to accomplish? That is a most excellent question that I fear we fail to ask. Too rarely when we ask questions about what should be the kids' programs? How should we even design this building? How should we be using the energy of the body of Christ if we are not thinking about the sole grandest purpose of the local church? We're probably 
going to go astray. Please note, there's many different purposes of the local church, but if it is not seeking to encourage its members to become more and more like Jesus Christ in every regard, then it's off focus. In other words, the gospel should be the centerpiece of every church. Why? Because the gospel is the centerpiece of everything. If I asked you to open your Bible to the gospel, I didn't say Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I just said open up your Bible to the gospel. Open it up to where it talks about forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Where would you go? The answer is any page will do. Why? Because that is what that book is about. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I know? Genesis 3.15 tells me so. There is a promise of one who is going to come to crush the head of the serpent, whose heel would be bruised. A covenant was cut with Abraham, promising a land, a nation, and a seed. Who is that seed? Who is the greater David? That's what the Old Testament is about. It is about slowly, progressively revealing the Lord Jesus Christ who crushes the head of the serpent, who brings his people together in a group called the church to be presented to the Father so that God might be all in all for all of eternity. In other words, the Old Testament is about the gospel, driving, moving forcefully forward to reveal in technicolor reality the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the epistles about? It is about the church of Jesus Christ and the rich theology that we have in the second person of the Trinity. What's the book of Revelation about? The culmination of his redemptive work. In other words, from Genesis to Revelation. And every page in between is about the gospel. If that's the case, it's a no-brainer. What's our church about? The gospel. What's our family about? What is my life to be about? Answer the gospel. You're looking for a good church. There are many markers, many signs, but be looking perhaps preeminently for a church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ and desires to see everybody underneath its roof and steeple to love him more today than they did yesterday. You found that? You found yourself a good church. Astounding ancient architecture. This is Ken Ham, editor of the expose Glasshouse Shattering the Myth of Evolution. According to evolution, human society slowly evolved into more complex forms, but the evidence instead shows complex civilizations arising around the world at the same time. For example, some civilizations built massive stone structures that are so tightly fitted, today we can't slip a credit card through the cracks. Modern engineers have no idea how this was done. The Bible explains why these complex civilizations all arose around the same time. After the flood, God divided the people at the Tower of Babel. From there, they took their shared knowledge, spread out, and began to build cities. Yes, it's the Bible that explains what we see in the world. Plan your trip to the internationally popular Ark Encounter attraction south of Cincinnati. It features a full-size Noah's Ark. Visit our website of AnswersRadio.com. Let's say a fatal disease or pestilence has spread around the world. That shouldn't be too difficult to imagine. Did God cause this pandemic? 
Well, in Exodus, God sent plagues upon Egypt, including boils in the death of the firstborn. When the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, God afflicted them with pestilence. In Leviticus 26, God said, If you spurn my statutes and hate my rules, I will visit you with panic and with wasting disease. In 2 Samuel 24, David sinned against God, and God punished Israel by sending a plague that killed 70,000 people. In 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, the Lord says that when he sends a pestilence among his people, it's a call to repentance. Between the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, pestilence is mentioned more than 30 times because the people did not repent. In Habakkuk 3, 5, the prophet sees the Lord come in judgment. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. So, would God have caused this pandemic? Whom else would it have come from? God is the one who made disease and cursed creation because of the sin of mankind. But God is merciful, and he has made the way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45, 7 and 22 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other, when we understand the text. Ancient Globetrotters, this is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and Archangel. Evolution teaches that ancient man was primitive, but does the evidence support this idea? Or not at all. Since the Tower of Babel, mankind has been traveling across the oceans, establishing civilization. For example, there's evidence the Americas might have been visited by other cultures long before Columbus ever set sail. Advanced shipbuilding technology early in history makes sense because Noah and his sons knew how to build ships. They likely passed this knowledge along. Since man was created intelligent and told to fill the earth, it should be no surprise to us who believe the Bible that ancient man explored and navigated around the world. The Bible gives us the true history of life and the universe. Dive deeper when you visit us at our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. Relativism is the belief that there is no universal truth, that all truth is specific to its culture and its time. And at a basic level, this contradicts itself because it is a universal statement. If I stand up in a room and say, nobody in this room can make any laws, you shouldn't listen to me. But if we buy into relativism, what other problems do we have? Well, first, we can make no universal moral statements like men and women are equally valuable. Second, we can make no absolute historical statements like the Holocaust happened. And third, while relativism seems to be a humble approach on religious questions, it actually turns up being quite arrogant. Because if I say Christianity can be true for me, while Islam is true for you, I'm not taking the beliefs of either of those religions seriously. Ultimately, we respect each other far more if we are willing to disagree. Ancient math and technology. This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's word. As we've seen this week, Noah's descendants were great architects and explorers. They also had a detailed knowledge of astronomy. But there's more. Hundreds of years ago, it's said the Chinese invented movable type writing paper, the seismograph, and even a mechanical clock. In ancient Greece, steam boilers were being used. 
And in Egypt, statues of the Pharaoh Ramses II show the builders were aware of complex math. Mankind did not evolve, but was made in the image of the Creator. And for those who believe the Bible's history, it's no surprise our ancestors used their God-given intellects to accomplish great feats. There's so much more to discover and to encourage you in your faith at AnswersRadio.com. Also, receive free teaching emails from Ken at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Sorry, I think I thought I had the uh, recording go. Uh, obviously, it's been uh, silent for a small, but well, it's all the way to the end of the show, anyways. So I am going to say bye for now. Thanks for listening, and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.